he's one of the most brilliant, the most inventive, prodigious and erudite stand-up comedians you will come across. Content Provider is the name of his current tour. 220 dates all around the country. It's back at the Royal and Gate in the week. I am so made up to have been in the company of Stuart Lee. So he's back to the Royal and Gate, and I spoke to him last night. So I'm going to do 28 minutes now on um, wealth and social responsibility. That's quite a heavy subject to go straight into. So I'm going to do a quick, uh, light-hearted, 45-second anecdote, first of all, to soften up the ground, and hopefully you won't see the gears change uh, <laughs> too obviously as we move into the main routine. Being a stand-up, it kind of automatically confers this social commentator label on you and you know you're obligated to have a view about well things depends who you are i don't suppose anyone's going to tim vine or um milton jones and asking them for social comment and mm. that's that's no problem because they're really really good at what they do if you if you do stuff that overlaps with politics a bit you get asked about it the, the problem the only thing about that for me is obviously the uh, stage version of me takes a more heightened, belligerent and, and less nuanced point of view of things than I would. Um, so it's not necessarily always the same. And there are things that, you know, who go, well, you've said this about so-and-so. Oh, yeah, I said it on stage and it's different because, first of all, you've, the people have been locked in there for an hour with you, so they're sort of being browbeaten. You may have worked up into some sort of frenzy of partisan views as a result of running around for an hour shouting. It's not, it's not really the same. So commenting on things as a stand-up, it depends. You know, I write newspaper columns. When I write those, I try to write them on some level as a sort of parody of the kind of person who gets asked to write newspaper columns. So, you know, you sort of toe the party line of that paper, but hopefully you do it in a slightly wonky way, as if the person doesn't quite know what they're doing, you know. So it's, it's different. I think Frankie Boyle writes good one-liners about politics. You, you also have to be careful because, I mean, I got asked to go on this thing, meet the author on BBC News Channel, and it was that, I forget his name, this little grumpy Scottish bloke from the Today programme, and he had got it into his head that I never did anything about the Labour Party and why was I just on at Michael Gove all the time. And I went, well, I did do half an hour of the last TV series about perceptions of Corbyn and he sort of didn't really know what to say about that they just sort of there's a sort of assumption that all comedians are left-wing and most of them are because it's because it's a position that requires imagination and hope <laughs> <laughs> oh. which are the same which are the same yeah, things yeah. that drive the creative mind whereas mm -hmm. um, brutal pragmatic um, uh, callous realism tends not to be the mindset that mm. leads people to be creative, you know, so that's why there's that bias exists. And um, I thought it was hilarious that all the all the right wing columnists have been on the telly saying um, uh, that Simon Brodkin's prank wasn't funny uh, on Theresa May. When you look at the quality of cartoons in the Daily Mail, or the or Theresa May spending four and a half minutes to snap back with the brilliant uh, spontaneous comment. I, there's someone I'd like to give a P45 to. It's Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah! Imagine if a stand-up comedian spent four and a half minutes coming up with that, you know, and then just said that. You, you know, you wouldn't get a stunning ovation. People go, well, you know, it's all right. Though, yeah, it does tend to be, it does tend to be liberal in the way that m most of the arts tend to be liberal. You're, you're hard pushed to find a fascist painter, you know. I mean, <laughs> Hitler was pretty good. And uh, Wyndham Lewis, although he mm. renounced it, you know, it's not, it doesn't tend to be 
Creative artists don't tend to be from from the right, you know. That, that could be a new idiom for the uh, the road mender, a fascist painter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, I think I think someone in OMD voted Conservative at some point. Okay, well, yeah. But that's it. I mean, um, you know, architecture and morality. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look to uh, in what you do, Stu, to, to to either try and lead people to a particular conclusion or certainly in a certain direction and, yeah. and to ask questions Does, is it irritating if they go away from content provider or carpet remnant world uh, you know and all they're saying to each other is may may you know don't Russell Howard and actually they've well, missed it all I don't mind you know I mean uh, first of all uh, probably about half of this show is politics mm. and, and a lot of the politics is in there as a springboard to do silly things you know and um, I would never you know, appear to endorse a position I thought was un unpleasant for comic effect. Um, there's normally some, you know, lo logic behind it if it does seem to be politically incorrect. You know, but um, the fact the fact that I get talked about as if I'm a political comedian probably shows the extent to which there's a dearth of it, or the people that are really doing it aren't, aren't given a platform because it's not really. I mean, it's probably it's probably not even half of what I of what I do. Stuart Lee last night in Nottingham, this coming week at the Royal Endurgate for Content Provider. We'll pick that thread back up after this. Let's go back to the conversation with Stuart Lee now. Having seen some of your tours at, you know, back over Royal Endurgate, oh, right. there's a sort of a Brechtian sort of demonstrator there for certain, where, where you know, you're kind of playing with that alienation, I think, well, you know, and, and, and I just wondered if that was you, you kind of nurtured that as, well, as part of the plan. Anyway, right. yeah, I, was, yeah. I was doing it anyway, then about seven years ago um, a girl in um, at uh, art school in um, Dublin wrote a thesis on me and sent me a copy of it, and there was a lot explaining how I was using Brechtian alienation. And I thought, oh well, I'll I'll say that I'm doing that then. <laughs> and um, I sort of, sort of, it was actually quite interesting reading her. A couple of things happened about the same time. One was this young woman wrote a very, I forget her name, but she wrote a, a thing of what she thought I was doing. It was actually quite helpful to me because obviously you're just doing it instinctively. You don't always have a plan, but her sort of six thousand word piece on me, which was written by an art student, she sort of gave me. I thought, oh yeah, I am doing that. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Also, about the same time, I started looking on the internet after the first series of Comedy Vehicle at all the things people hated about me, at all the people saying he's this, he's this, he's this. I hate it when he does this, and I decided to do all those things sort of more because they were obviously the things that were standing out so I kind of the in between this academic analysis of me and becoming aware of the things the reasons why people said they would want to kill me or beat me up if they ever met me and I tried to do to become more like that sort of person mm. so the act moved on quite a lot it became more like itself and less like other people as a result of those sorts of things but the Brechtian Nation thing I, don't, I didn't really know what that was and mm. I was doing it and then when I read her explaining him why it was okay. I thought yeah I am doing that but I kind of I think I don't know why more people don't arrive at that and I also don't know why more people don't arrive at the sort of self-aware stuff I mean if I was as famous as Jimmy Carr and one I'd been in a massive tax scandal I would have to write a show about that I just couldn't not do it and I'm amazed it's like a gift you know because you sort of think oh, I wish some things would happen to me yeah, yeah. And, that, and not many things do happen to me now because I am a father and I, I don't have an exciting life and I come around theatres all the time whereas someone like Phil Nickel who's a great Canadian stand-up his shows are about some night out he had in 
Amsterdam where he ends up on LSD with a transvestite or something and that, that thing never happens to me if I have things like that happen to me I get loads of really good shows out but the tax thing I thought well, you've got to write a show yeah, about that surely yeah. but no and also the other thing of course is interesting about being him mm. and he also doesn't address I think he's good writes good jokes by the way I'm not criticising him is that when you say oh this happens and this happens it has happened but it's happening to Jimmy Carr who's famous so it, it must be different if he goes into a shop the shop is changed by the presence of him being there and I kind of think if you're supposed to be this everyman figure as a stand-up, in a way you can't avoid the fact that you aren't anymore, and particularly if you're a household name like that. When I watch stand-ups and they come on and they're talking about, oh, I did this and I did that, the theatre part of me, or the writer part of me, is thinking, well, who are you? Why are you on stage telling us this? It doesn't make sense. It's a bit like in musical theatre, when they start singing, I think, why are they doing that? It makes more sense if it's a musical about musicians, right? The character of me on stage is a 49-year-old man whose job is being a stand-up comedian and who does this uh, because he likes stand-up, thinks he's brilliant at it and also has to provide for his family. And all the things, his work, he doesn't talk about you going to work, you need the stationery, he talks about his work, which is being a comedian, right? Yeah. And um, so, of course, it's, I, I can't see I can do anything else other than stand-up that is on some level self-aware and deconstructive mm -hmm. because... That's what I do all the time. I don't have any friends. I don't do anything. I don't go to sports. And no. I, th so, it's not. You know, that's the the that's the truth of it. I mean, this tour is really a lot of it is about the economic mechanics of comedy mm -hmm. in a in a digital era. You know, and th which is why the set is made out of other stand-up comedians' second-hand DVD cases, and why. I have to go to a CEX about every three weeks and buy 200 second-hand DVDs, which are then smashed, which has the funny knock-on effect. It means we're basically driving around the country in a panel van full of other comedians' empty DVD cases, which is all of which are obsolete now. Yeah. So there's coming almost like a weird ritual that like the KLF would do or something, you know. <laughs> Okay. Driving obsolete well, physical media from town to town. No, they've got sprinklers here, so I think yeah, you know, you've, yeah, you'll be all right. Yeah. Fine. With other things in in your life, you know, you you mentioned your son, you mentioned family, Scooby Doo, yeah, yeah. Bridges, yeah. etc. So, do do you kind of get to a point where you know, I don't know, something happens with your family, something happens at home, and you think, right, I could do that, but mm. I have to I have to bring that as far away from observational comedy. Yeah, as, 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 I have to take it away from them as yeah. well because my my little boy, uh, well, when he was he's ten now, but. At his first school, he had quite a lot of problems as a result of us being comedians. Mm. Um, that um, I think kids picked on him because their parents didn't like us or had an opinion about us. So um, I'd never want to put my own family in the in the firing line. And I, I change. I tried to change enough details about real things. What's sad, of course, is that sometimes things are just absolutely perfect, you know. And you wish you could hang on to the real mm. details of it. I mean, when I, when I was first on the circuit in. Um, 1989 I had a routine that was verbatim about something my ex-girlfriend's mother did that was just you know really, and I and I used her name which is like an ordinary name you know I was doing 100 seater rooms I wasn't on anything and then one night I was in Whitechapel it was about June 1990 and a girl in the audience shouted out is that so-and-so's mum and I went yeah <laughs> I thought, what was the chances of that happening? And then I thought, yeah. oh yeah, you can't do that, and you yeah. certainly can't do it now. Yeah. And I, I do find it that that was before I was even on telly or anything. Mm. But, I, but I do find it bizarre that there are a lot of people in their thirties now 
I think it's partly to do with this self-exposure generation that social media has caused. Doing very, very personal shows about people close to them. I, I mean, I hope they don't live to regret it, mm. you know, because I, I think it's... And you, and you live and learn, you know. In, in 1980, 1990, I got asked by the now defunct music magazine Vox to write something about record collectors. And I wrote a thing about a guy I used to see around in Oxford who was obsessed with the idea of sound, basically. And he always used to be at gigs, hanging microphones up in different places. He'd ask the band if he could bootleg it, and then he'd talk to you for ages. And when he came in a record shop, like one of the second-hand record shops up the Cowley Road, the owners would go, oh, no, you know, and he, couldn't, he knew where they were going to be buttonhole for an hour and a half talking about the fidelity of the pretty things 1967 releases or whatever first I went to see Sonic Youth in 87 he was on the back seat of the bus I remember talking to uh, the members of Swerve Driver and uh, people were just worn down by his interest in not so much music as how sound worked so I wrote a sort of thing a thinly veiled thing about him and then some people sent a letter to the paper and went how dare you do that, he's such a harmless bloke. I thought, yeah, you're right, it was, it was out of order. Then about ten years ago, someone got in touch with me and said, I'm writing a, a biography of Michael Gerzon. And I went, what, Michael Gerzon, the bloke who made all those free jazz albums and recordings of experimental music? Yeah. And we wanted to quote your piece on him. I went, well, I don't know him, I never wrote a piece about him. And then when you did, you wrote a thing for Vox in 1990 that was clearly based on him. And I went, that was Michael Gerzon. They went, yeah, and I've got loads of albums that he recorded because he was a master of getting into a place and recording a one-off event, yeah. you know. Apparently he'd invented a whole new... He was some kind of scientist. He invented a whole new form of recording right, technology. Right, yeah. He was yeah, like a, tenet, yeah. a major yeah. figure, and I've got loads of records that he... And um, I went, well, I hated that thing, I said, and in fact, I felt so bad about it that after that I decided I would never write anything specifically about anyone again because right. it hadn't occurred to me that it could affect someone, you know. And they went, oh, it's all right, he really liked it, and he had it framed or something, that was really funny. And I went, well, you can quote it as long as you put that I regretted it, but yeah. it's a weerd thing where it overlaps with real life, you know. The Derngates in, in Northampton is really good, actually. It's one of the few modern theatres that have been rebuilt which have seemed to have carried that, um, that uh, understanding with them of, um, of the dynamics of how the room works. I mean, I, I do prefer... I prefer rooms about 500 to 1,000 if they've got, if, if the circle's near the stage and there's balconies, if the ceiling's low so you feel like the laughter's exploding all around you. And that's why in London, for example, instead of doing a month at Hammersmith Apollo, I do six months at Leicester Square Theatre. You can also charge half as much and you see more of the money, weirdly, even for half the price. You don't have to get in right. all this extra kit. But this tour is 220 dates, right? And I'm 50 next year. I'm finding it a struggle and probably the next tour I do, which will be in two years' time, to meet the demand, I will do less dates and bigger rooms. And I think I've put the I've put the time in, in the trenches now and I mm. need to take my foot off the gas. And if it means the tickets go up to 30 quid, and it'll have to be. You uh, know, I always thought watching um, Comedy Vehicle, you know, yeah. obviously completely different medium, but, but actually that sort of... You know, your little cabaret style, yeah, sort yeah, of tables yeah. around. That 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 just looked like it really worked. Well, obviously it did yeah, work. Well, it worked and weirdly. It, it worked for the first three series. Mm. By the time I came to do the fourth series, I was working out the material. Sometimes in two thousand seater rooms, right? So you could write some really weird bit, right? And if 
10% of the room got it, that was still 200 people, and then there would be a tipping point where that laugh would spread. When I crunched that down to 100 people, 20 of whom are humorless TV executives in a 100-seater room, often that tipping point was not reached. And there were bits in this fourth series of people went, God, that was a really obtuse thing to do on television. But it wasn't in the theatre, because the amount of people swung it, you know. Mm. So uh, it, it started to not work. My idea for the fifth series was that I was going to do it in big rooms, and that the tragedy of the character would be that he doubted why everyone was there and sort of hated the audience for coming and thought they were trendy because his own low self-esteem really would make him think he shouldn't be in those rooms. Yeah, yeah. But actually, it never it never came to that. But I think it would have been fun to to play it like that. Um, uh, but I also doing it in a small room is also a decision about wanting not not wanting to use cutaways for reaction shots. Okay. For example. If someone dies at Live at the Apollo, goes down to silence, it doesn't matter, because yeah. they, can, they can and have done and regularly do construct it from dropping in reaction yeah. shots yeah. Mm -hmm. and dubbing laughs. Yeah. Whereas there's no reaction shots in four series of Comedy Vehicle, right? They're, any laughs that you see are in the same shot as my face, right? So you know it's mm -hmm. happening in real time because yeah. the camera positions meant that the audience were sort of in the shot, right? And that was a really d deliberate thing because with me, people that hate it which is half the population say it's not funny and no one would ever laugh at it and I just thought well they are look they're not they're not that's a real thing happening in real time you know it's not um yeah and I, I so I wanted to do that there was I saw something a report uh, last couple of days it was actually a BBC thing I think uh, and thought of you um that says almost two-thirds of school children now wouldn't mind if social media had never been invented yeah, I saw that. that must be quite a pleasing thing to hear well, I think it is, yeah, but it's pretty not pleasing in as much as it means that on some level they must feel traumatised enough by the constant scrutiny yeah. to um, to wish the genie could be put back in the box, you know. But, I mean, it'd be very difficult to be a stand-up today. Funnily enough, I just bumped into the mother in the street of Joe... Uh, I forget. No, uh, he, well, Joe, he, run, he runs a comedy gig <laughs> here. His dad was one of the folk comedians of the 60s. Okay. There's a missing chapter in British comedy history which is... We think alternative comedy started in 1979, but in the 60s and 70s, there was every t region of the UK had its Mike Harding or its Billy Connolly or its Jasper Carrot. These folk, these guys that were doing folk clubs were basically like alternative comedians. Probably be a little bit racist or sexist by today's standards, but they were nowhere near the, um, the club comics. And of course, the guy from here, the Nottingham guy, whose name I forget, there's no... There's no footage of him. There's one bit of audio knocking around. Even the alternative comics of the 80s, there's loads of them, there's no footage of them. But a kid now will go on stage, he'll do his first open spot in some little club, five minutes, his mate videos it on a phone, sticks it up on YouTube, and by midnight that night, some guy in Venezuela has gone, you're terrible, give up. And then the, um, in the, in the below-the-line comments, you know, and I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they have the self-belief to, to, to do that, you know. And that is content provision, which brings us back to the Durngate. Yeah. So we'll see you on Thanks Thursday. Thanks a lot. We're looking forward to it. I got a no-star review in the Daily Telegraph. I did. The bloke said... Normally they give you one for turning up. The bloke said that I have contempt for the public and if I understood anything about the sacrifices people make to come and see things, I would spare them my toxic scorn. Um, and I do understand all that and I just did it for a laugh, really. Which is within the remit of this job, isn't it? if you think about it for a second. <laughs>